Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, Mr. Purple from that other job. Mm, Oh, Mr. Purple. (laughs) And you have survived, unlike some of the people that we are about to talk about here in this episode, because in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we are talking about the films of 1992. And in this episode, we are talking about a notable debut feature, and that is Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs. And so, weirdly, for two episodes in a row now, this has sort of echoed our first season. Uh, Our season on 1994, we started with Aladdin, and of course, in that season, we had talked about another Disney animated movie, The Lion King. Here we are talking about Reservoir Dogs, and in our first season, we talked about Pulp Fiction. So uh, I look forward to our next episode on North 2. (laughs) (laughs) I'm ready for the Cabin Boy prequel myself. Yeah, all great stuff coming up. But we spent a lot of time talking about how great 92 was as a landmark year for independent cinema. I think there were a lot of different potential debut features that we could have talked about from major filmmakers. But Tarantino, much like Martin Scorsese back in uh, 1967 is something that we just, we couldn't possibly pass up Tarantino, such a major filmmaker. And this is a movie that a lot, you know, we've talked about some first features in the past where these filmmakers go on to do huge influential movies, but maybe their debuts uh, are still relatively unknown. But that's certainly not the case here with Reservoir Dogs, which has a huge following. Yeah, I was going to kind of echo that sentiment by saying not just a huge following, but it was uh, massively influential, right? In yes. that whole uh, 90s feel. It's it's very interesting. Like, it, there's so many of these, like, uh, street gangster, like, cool bad guy movies in the 90s, right? Speaking of Scorsese, I think a lot of that comes from Goodfellas and a lot of, you know, the stuff that he did. But, um, you know, this is the one that, just broke out beyond all the other breakouts, I think. Right. And it helped that Pulp Fiction became such a huge hit, both commercially and with all the award nominations. And I think a lot of people who maybe weren't as aware of independent cinema saw Pulp Fiction and went back and watched Reservoir Dogs. So a few years after it came out, it had a sort of resurgence of interest from people. I know for me, at least, that was the case. I wasn't savvy enough at 12, 13 to be aware of Sundance movies. But when I saw Pulp Fiction, I was really excited and I went back and watched this movie. Right. That was that was one of the fun things in the 90s, right? You'd find something and you'd be like, oh, who's this guy? And then you'd go back and you'd watch most of that person's other stuff. And uh, that that was the same with me, Josh. Yeah. And that was, I mean, that's just a general, I'm sure anyone discovering sort of an expansive view of cinema, it's exciting to see a movie and realize there's so much more. I mean, in this case, there was only one more movie to watch, but you know, you discover some filmmaker and there's a whole filmography. Well, two more movies. Well, if we count, uh, (laughs) if we, I'm sure that wasn't available to watch to really anybody in 1994, but yeah, if we count Tarantino's early sort of partially lost short film, My Best Friend's Birthday from 1987. I don't know who was watching that movie after Pulp Fiction, if it was even available to watch. Uh, yeah, you really have to go and like those like, yeah, uh, obscurists who would like seek out every cinema gem that they could find. Although that's not really a gem, that film, but it is interesting in regards to where he came from. Yeah, it is. I mean, now you can watch it on YouTube, but of course that didn't exist then. And I don't know if it was shown in... Uh, I don't know, in academic settings or uh, there were bootlegs of it, or I'm not sure how it ended up sort of getting out to the world there. Um, The version that I think we all watched on YouTube looked like it was taken from a VHS tape because it had some kind of tracking uh, stuff at the the bottom of the screen. So I'm not sure how that was disseminated, but uh, you can watch it now on YouTube. Reservoir Dogs, though, is important, not just from the Tarantino aspect, but again, this was you know, a Sundance film that didn't win Sundance. Right. And this became, I think this was the breakout hit of that. Even before Pulp Fiction, like people knew like this was the movie from Sundance. Right. The other aspect of it is this is such a major year for Steve Buscemi as an independent actor uh, between this and 
in the soup, which did win Sundance. Um, and, you know, he was so dominant as, as a leading man in, or as just a character actor in the nineties in independent cinema, actually going back to the eighties with Jarmusch and everything like really, really built a catalog of work. That's so impressive. Yeah. And obviously someone who was really supportive of these indie filmmakers. Um, another thing that you can watch on YouTube is sort of a short film, basically more than just a rehearsal, uh, somewhere in between there when Tarantino was developing this project at the Sundance Institute. So before it played at the festival, he was one of the filmmakers who uh, got the chance to work on his film supported by Sundance. And Steve Buscemi is one of three actors in that little kind of test footage that Tarantino shot along with Tarantino himself. And so there he is right from the beginning kind of supporting Tarantino, helping him work out this film, helping him get to a point where it could be made in the way that it was made. And in that footage, you have Tarantino playing the Harvey Keitel character. And I am glad that that is not the route they took in the final product. Right. It's kind of both because there's an early scene where Steve Buscemi is essentially playing the Harvey Keitel character in a, in a scene with uh, Joe, the crime boss, that in the final film is a scene between him and Harvey Keitel. And then, yeah, in the, the footage that they shoot of the post-heist chaos, then they make Tarantino in his character in sort of the place of the Harvey Keitel character and Buscemi playing the character that he played. So a lot of things that interesting to see in that footage, things that were worked out later on that, that Tarantino used or didn't use when he finally made the film. But it's, it's a curiosity for fans. I think like My Best Friend's Birthday too, which is which is unfinished, you can tell that it's a bunch of scenes from a movie that is missing other scenes. And it's uh, also a lot of acting from Tarantino in that. But um, interesting for fans, maybe not something to, to watch uh, otherwise. So like you said, this was a huge sensation out of Sundance. It was picked up by Miramax in a major deal. It did do decently well at the box office for a small movie like this. It grossed 2.9 million on its 1.3 million budget. So not a huge number, but more than double the actual budget and was nominated at the Independent Spirit Awards for Best First Feature, uh, Best Director for Tarantino, and actually won that award for Steve Buscemi for Best Supporting Actor. So I, I, I and, and I think critics mostly like this movie, but I was su a little surprised that there wasn't as much universal acclaim for it when I was looking at the reviews. Uh, Siskel and Ebert actually gave it two thumbs down, although they were kind of mixed on it. I mean, listening to them talk about it initially, I thought they might have gone the other way, like thumbs up, but it wasn't great. But they end up going kind of thumbs down, but it had some strengths. Both of them thought it was very stylish, but they found the, the story uh, kind of empty. And uh, Roger Ebert, in in his also mixed review, he said, now that we know Quentin Tarantino can make a movie like Reservoir Dogs, it's time for him to move on and make a better one. This film, the first from an obviously talented writer-director, is like an exercise in style. It was made on a low budget, but the part that needs work didn't cost money. It's the screenplay. Having created the characters and fashioned the outline, Tarantino doesn't do much with his characters except to let them talk too much especially when they should be unconscious from shock and loss of blood. And I think it's weird to criticize Tarantino for having too much dialogue, because, of course, this is a hallmark of Tarantino that as, we come for. as we go on, right, <laughs> is that what people want is, yeah, sure, we got these crime stories and we got violence and all this kind of stuff. And and that's appealing. But it's really the way that he has his characters talk that I think most audiences are are, are interested in and that is sort of his signature that has been imitated by other people. So it's, it's weird to see this not only from Ebert as, as a criticism of this movie. Also, these are all professional thieves. I don't think they would be in shock at all. They, like they literally game plans. So stuff like this doesn't happen. But with that idea of like, hey, this might happen. Right. So there is one character who is in shock from his blood loss and he doesn't talk all that much in the film. Right. I mean, I think he's the only one, the Tim Roth character who gets shot in the gut and is, you know, sort of slowly dying over the course of the movie as they hide out in this warehouse after their heist gone wrong. He definitely clearly is in shock. I mean, that's one of the major points of this film is the way that that character is in shock and is unable to kind of uh, focus. 
but I don't think anyone else, no, no one else is injured uh, really until the very, very end of the film. So I'm not really sure what else Ebert is talking about here, what other characters should be uh, in pain and in shock from loss of blood rather than than the one Tim Roth character. It's interesting because, you know, I mean, is he does he want more character development or like what is it that he is looking for here? I mean, I think he does want more character development. And it's something that Siskel and Ebert talk about in their review on the show as well, that they feel like these characters, you don't get to know them. And and I, I don't really quite get that criticism either. I think you do get character development for Tim Roth. I mean, we see eventually these flashbacks about him as a cop and preparing to go undercover. And and one of the biggest strengths of this movie that is not really talked about in these reviews at the time, but I feel like people talk about now a lot, is that relationship between the Tim Roth character and the Harvey Keitel character and how it's not just these macho gangsters. It's like these guys who are sensitive and they're they're caring about each other. And once Tim Roth's character is injured, Harvey Keitel is really like protective of him and to, to his detriment ultimately by the end of the movie. And there's a lot of emotional tenderness between them. And Jason, I know you're always criticizing me for finding homoerotic subtext in films, but <laughs> I don't think you can deny there's a little bit of that between Harvey Keitel and Tim Roth in this movie. I didn't get that at all. Yet again, Josh, <laughs> all right. why can't Fair it just enough. be these guys bonded over whatever friendship or job they had and one was sad that the other was shot and feels a responsibility because they were in a job together he even says he took a bullet for me that doesn't have to be gay josh you can just take a bullet for someone with no sexual undertones yeah i i mean i agree i think you're right that that is all true that is what it is there and i'm not saying it's sexual but there's an almost there's a tenderness and an almost romantic sense between these characters and some of those scenes. I feel like you're missing an emotion in your in your capacity for human interactions at this point in time. You can have a tenderness with a platonic friend of the same sex, Josh. I don't know yes. why you keep, you keep denying this. Do you need a hug? I, I'll I, hug no, you. I, <laughs> you're going to hug me over, uh, over the internet. No, I'm not denying it. I, I'm saying it's both. I'm saying that you're absolutely right. It's all of those things that you say. But there's also a level of it that has a sort of a romantic uh, component to it. And I, I don't see why it can't be both of those things, that it is friendship, tenderness. It is uh, the bonding between associates or whatever. Um, but you can also get a sort of a romantic sense out of it, too. Dave, what did you think? I mean, I thought it was more a father son thing, but I, I oh. think it could it could be what Josh is saying. I don't think that's like completely discountable. Look right, at, that's all I'm saying is that it's possible back. for there to be. I mean, anything's <laughs> possible. Anything's possible, Josh. Oh, oh, Mister Blonde just cut off the cops here. I find it erotic. I want to go and uh, have sex with Mister Blonde now. Anything's possible. I'm just saying you're looking for something that I don't think is there. I agree with Dave. It's more of a older brother, younger brother type thing. I, yeah, I think there's all of those things that you could look at there. And if you find an interpretation, it, there's like, yes, anything is possible. So that's great. That's what's cool about a movie. If you see an interpretation well, there and you want to describe it. I'm interpreting your relationship with your younger brother in a totally different way right now than I ever have before, Josh. All right. Well, thanks. For <laughs> I, I just love that this is not going to end here. We're going to hear this whole thing come up in future episodes so, i just, I I just that was like the last point i would have gotten to in reservoir dogs but it's cool man whatever so i mean and also it's not something like one of the top you know letterbox reviews mentions this like i am certainly not the only person to have thought I'm of sure. this idea and I, I, at least um maybe not in 92 or at least not in mainstream reviews but certainly now plenty of people see that in this film and not just me did your parents make you and your younger brother take baths together? Uh, no, I, we're, 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 uh, we're far enough apart in age that that would not have really made sense. I had to take but, baths uh, with my younger brother when I was all right. a kid. I stopped on my birthday, though. I was like, Mom, I'm on which birthday? I'm which 26. Birthday? Yeah. I'm 26. This is too much, Mom. Whose issues are being revealed here? Hmm. <laughs> I just... It's funny. I, I I want us to do like a really like overt LGBTQ film and you're just like, I don't see it. I don't know what everyone's saying about this one. So I think this is a very basic interpretation. Um, and but I think your interpretation 
is also, you know, is is more obvious and is is valuable and is important. And I think that is one of the major themes of this film is that these macho guys have a sensitivity to each other and that it is about the male bonding, whether that's friendship or something more. But the friendship element is key. So I don't want to discount what you're saying here. I think that's important. Well, I mean, especially at the end when, um, you know, uh, Tim Roth's character does reveal who he is, I guess, spoilers, if you haven't seen this film from 1992, you know, he does reveal that he was a cop and he was the the rat the whole time. And just how it affects, it breaks Harvey Keitel's heart, you know, is uh, a very emotionally resonant scene there. And Tim Roth didn't have to tell him that. So it's like he felt a loyalty to him at this point, to be honest, and it did not end well for him. No, no, it did not. But you're right. I think that reveal is important that he spends the whole movie like guarding that secret, even when he is bleeding out and about to die. But yet he feels that he has to unburden himself about that to this person who's helped him so much, you know, right before he dies. And, and you know, the flashbacks work to varying extents, but I do think the the ones for the Tim Roth character where he's having to learn how to tell the story and telling the story to the gangsters to like really sell himself. Then we see him get shot in a very random act, uh, a carjacking where they where uh, he gets shot. Like I thought those were probably the most effective of the, uh, the flashbacks. Right. And if you're concerned about character development, that's, that's what you get from those characters. I think in those flashbacks, so uh, Owen Gleiberman in Entertainment Weekly was more unabashedly positive. He said, brilliantly acted by a high testosterone cast that includes Harvey Keitel, Steve Buscemi, Chris Penn, and the charismatic British actor Tim Roth, Reservoir Dogs is funny, thrilling, and so unabashedly violent, it both shocks you and leaves you giddy at your own capacity for shock. At the same time, this is an ingeniously plotted 1950s-style heist picture. It's like John Huston's The Asphalt Jungle or Stanley Kubrick's The Killing, remade by the Scorsese of Mean Streets. Quentin Tarantino, the young newcomer who wrote and directed the film, is hooked on the pleasures of cinematic game-playing. Tarantino has made a nihilist comedy about how human nature will always undercut the best-laid plans. Yeah, so I, I watched The Killing in preparation for this. Did you guys watch it? Uh, no, I have not ever seen no, that. I didn't but uh, I know you really, really liked it. It's really good, and you definitely see the um, inspiration, especially that Act Three in The Killing, how it all kind of plays out. But yeah, we know Tarantino's a, a, a student of cinema, uh, video archives, just watching movies all day, every day, and. I do think that um, Third Act elevates this film as well. Yeah, I mean, Tarantino draws on so many influences. And as we know, that that's something that has become a signature for him, these homages and these references and stuff, which people, I think critics and viewers are first working out as they watch this movie, like, oh, that's what he's doing. And, uh, you know, citing the things that have influenced him. But it's always very conscious, I think, on his part. You, you, I think it would be rare, if not impossible, to come at Tarantino and say, you know, I think this movie was influenced by this and for him not to be very aware of that and maybe, you know, and have done it on purpose. Or if he was influenced by nothing. Right. I don't think he's ever been influenced by nothing. That's, That's what I mean. Right. It's, it, would, it would be impossible. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. Yes. Even now, even now that he himself has become so influential. So Todd McCarthy and Variety also was a more mixed uh, along the lines of Roger Ebert. He said, a show-off piece of filmmaking that will put debut writer-director Quentin Tarantino on the map, Reservoir Dogs is an intense, bloody, in-your-face crime drama about a botched robbery and its aftermath, colorfully written in vulgar gangster vernacular and well-played by a terrific cast. This piece of strong pulp will attract attention but looks like a modest box office performer. Undeniably impressive pick, grabs the viewer by the lapels and shakes hard. But it also is about nothing other than a bunch of macho guys and how big their guns are. As accomplished as all the individual elements are, Pick feels like the director's audition piece, an occasion for a new filmmaker to flaunt his talents. And why would, why would you ever make a movie just, you know, with the intention of flaunting your talents? Is that an insult or I'm confused there? Yeah, I mean, I think like like Siskel and Ebert, he feels like this movie is, is style over substance, which 
And not that it doesn't have very impressive style, but I, I, I think there is plenty of substance. And I think one thing about Tarantino, you know, talking about all those influences uh, that he always brings in is that he uses the style as his substance, like referencing and homaging things and, and playing with style is, is part of what he does as a filmmaker. And he continues to do throughout all his films. Yeah, that's a really good point, Josh, because, you know, we always talk about, um, you know, is there a reason you're moving the camera or cutting? And I do think with Tarantino, you see that uh, so much. And it's interesting because when we were watching uh, my best friend's birthday or whatever, you're like, you, you didn't get any of that, you know, so you maybe saw like his like love of Kung Fu in one scene, but that's it. But you didn't watch that and think like, oh, this could lead to the next thing by any means. So I agree with you. Like, um, yeah, it's, it's very purposeful. This, the, the way he utilizes the camera here. Right. And you can see, I mean, my best friend's birthday, that's five years earlier than this. And Tarantino is obviously younger and you can see him develop a lot more, even in that test footage from, from Sundance or from the Sundance Institute, where maybe he doesn't have the opportunity to do a lot with the camera, but even that is much more basic stylistically than this is. So clearly uh, his development of the of the film or working with certain collaborators allowed him to have a lot of stylistic flair in this film that he hadn't had earlier on. Right. Harvey Keitel had read the script and they were going to make this as a real low budget movie. And then Keitel got a hold of it. And uh, he once he signed on as a producer, they were able to up the budget but, you know, he's so valuable as as the glue of this thing as well. I, I mean, you know, somewhere along the line, we've lost, uh, uh, you know, we talked about Harvey Keitel and he's just kind of doing whatever now. But he's so, he's such a great actor. He is. And I think you're right that he's the glue of this, that if you want to talk about emotion or character development, his performance and and to a lesser extent, but but also definitely Tim Roth's performance gives you that emotional core that maybe isn't entirely there in the script. And also, if some of the dialogue is show offy or is overwritten, uh, as people say, the delivery from Harvey Keitel makes that dialogue feel real. Where in the mouth of someone else, say Tarantino himself, right. like in that test footage, it doesn't sound real. You're you're a hundred percent right, and and Tim Roth again. What an interesting actor in the 90s, obviously still working, but um, yeah, he's he's pretty fascinating in, in this role. I think he um, he takes some really big chances and they pay off. Yeah. And, and I think for the kind of writing that's here where it's maybe a little overdone, it's a little mannered. And also for a first time director, having those actors with such confidence and such ability makes a huge difference. And if he had made it as he initially planned for like $30,000 with his friends, I, I don't think it would have turned out nearly as well. And I think, um, you know, give give him credit for the way he cast the film, right? Even moving his self over to that more kind of talkative character who doesn't really serve a point other than to put him in the movie, right? But, um, right. you know, that was a smart move, you know? So the whole thing, um, really, really well cast film. Yes, absolutely. So like we said, both of us, I guess, uh, saw this post Pulp Fiction. I know I remember renting it from Blockbuster or something like that uh, in high school. That was that was the same experience for you, Jason. It was high school. It was college. I don't remember, but it was the same type of uh, thing where you had heard about it or, you know, your idiot friend had a poster on the wall trying to be cool. And you're like, I guess I should watch that. And then you, uh, I do remember all that, you know. Because we talked about swingers in my pick in 96, and there's all that conversation about that. And then they kind of spoof the homage with it. And that was a fun bit as well. Right. And already just four years later, that shot is iconic enough that you could you could spoof it or reference it in another movie and people would know what you were doing. The the slow motion shot of the uh, the gangsters in their suits walking out of the restaurant, which we see at the beginning of the film when the when the opening credits roll, I think is what you're referring to, right? Yeah, and I remember this uh, SNL sketch where they did like uh, Reservoir Sweat Hogs or something. It was Welcome Back, Cotter. Uh, you know, the class is, uh, you know, kind of gangsters. And they did that shot, too. That was a fun one. Obviously, it's a well-known shot. You know what's so funny, though, Josh? Like that first scene where Tarantino's going over Like a Virgin and, and everything. And then that walk. Those are both iconic. You could cut those both from the movie and it wouldn't make a difference. 
Yes, yes, you could. I think that actually applies to quite a few things in the movie, but we'll we'll talk about that uh, a little later. Um, Dave, did you see this the same uh, as we did, kind of post Pulp Fiction? Yeah, I, I was trying to remember. I think it was between Kill Bill one and two. Oh, like okay. I was waiting for two, and I was like, oh, I got to see more Tarantino, and and I was like, I'll finally go back and catch this. Right, and of course, loved it. Yeah, I remember. I think I rewatched it before Kill Bill. One came out because I was I rewatched the the Tarantino movies up to that point, but that was the last time I had seen it, so I hadn't seen it in like close to twenty years. Uh, oh, I yeah. think so. Jason, did you did you watch this multiple times, or was this also a long time ago for you before revisiting it? Uh, I it was a long time since I revisited it, but I quite enjoyed it again. Yeah. Well, then we'll come back in a moment and talk about our general thoughts on Reservoir Dogs. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1992, we are talking about a notable directorial debut. It is Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs. And Jason, you were just referencing that opening scene of all of the characters, including uh, some who we don't really ever see or see very, very little of later, uh, kind of sitting around this table at a diner they're all kind of just bantering, you know, it's not anything that's necessarily going to become relevant later. Tarantino's character is talking about his opinions on Madonna songs and Buscemi's character talks about his thoughts on tipping and Harvey Keitel and Lawrence Tierney, who plays the the boss, Joe, who's brought them all together. They're kind of bantering. And Jason, you're right that that whole scene could be taken out. Um, And I would argue that it should be taken out. I had a weird experience where, like I said, I haven't seen this movie in a really long time. I remembered enjoying it. I thought, oh, this will be fun to revisit. And I put it on and I start with that first scene and I thought, oh no, this is awful. Do I not like this movie anymore? Like this is gonna be an interesting experience. And, And it wasn't the case. I did like the movie. I did like it overall. But that scene is, I feel like everything that people say about Tarantino, about being show-offy or his stuff is overwritten or it's just this macho bluster or whatever, that is everything in that scene. I hated all those characters in those moments. I hated what they were saying. Tarantino is such a bad actor that I just wanted him to shut up. I thought it was all just kind of look at this sort of cool uh, counterintuitive thing that I can say. And I just really, really dislike that opening scene. I think that's fair. But here's my question, Josh, about that. like. You're watching it. You know, we're always trying to place it in the time and, you know, the context of when it came out. And we know how influential this film is. And like, hey, look at all these guys making pop cultural references and being cool and this and that. And do you think that part of your dislike was because that trope has now been played so many times in film? I mean, maybe. But on the other hand, you know, I love Pulp Fiction and we talked about it in an episode and I, I think I watched it even one more time after that because I did another podcast about it. And and that stuff is done really well. I think part of the problem is that the opening scene of Reservoir Dogs is just a bunch of pop culture talking and it could very well be any characters. And in Pulp Fiction and even later on in this movie, when they talk about Pam Greer and uh, the other, the TV show that they're referencing that I can't remember the name of it now, um, when they're all in the car together and Tim Roth's character is slowly kind of trying to figure out how to fit in with them as the undercover cop, then you have pop culture references as a tool of developing these characters and within sort of the overall crime context. And I think that's what he does in Pulp Fiction. And then it's enjoyable. So I think that's part of the problem. Dave, you know, when Josh is right, he's right. I got to give it to him. I, I And I'm sitting here. I got to disagree with you on this one, Josh. Okay. Because I think by the time we're done with that opening scene, we kind of have such a feel for all these characters and how they relate to one another. And I, I think it just works so well. I I don't know because so much of it is from Tarantino's character who basically is not in the movie movie anymore. Sure. Yeah. I mean, and that's always a thing. His characters usually are like, you know, they stick out like sore thumbs in all of his movies. But aside from that, though, I I feel like Steve Buscemi, we know so much about. uh, We know about all of the other characters, Harvey Cattell. You know, uh, the boss, Joe, I, I think we, we get to get his point of view. Like, we really get to know these people so much more, I feel like. I, I, I can jump in and, you know, uh, look, If what if it started with that kind of slow-mo shot and we're all walking and we don't know what and it 
you said it's the reservoir dogs. And then we smashed to I'm shot. I'm dying. Like I could really see that as an effective opening as well. I have to agree that it, it, it is not necessary, but I mean, it's become iconic. It has its fans, right? So including uh, Madonna, who had a conversation with him about it and told him it was a, a misinterpretation of the character's part. <laughs> but I, I, you know, as much as I found the scene annoying, I was sort of swayed by, you know, it's a potential. It's as I was saying earlier, you can find potential interpretations. And even if the intention wasn't for that, that doesn't make them less valid. So I definitely think you can interpret the song that way and you find evidence to support it as as uh, as Tarantino does here. So, you know, what, and I'm a huge Madonna fan, so I'm, I'm OK with that. I'll also just add when, when Joe walks back over and is like, who didn't throw in? That, that's that's one of the funniest lines in the movie, I think. Like yeah. it's, it's so a dollar. Funny. No, because they just finished the whole conversation about how he doesn't tip. Yeah, and he missed it, oh. and he just walks in. That line is just so funny to me. Uh, I mean, I, I I like Lawrence Tierney a lot, and uh, in this film, he's got a real presence. But you know, Josh, if we're going to talk about iconic scenes, I think the next thing that pops up is the Michael Madsen scene where he's dancing the Steelers wheel, and he just mutilates. Marvin Nash, uh, you know, the uh, cop there, played by Kirk Baltz, who did a great job. And we saw him in uh, the short film Coffee and Cigarettes when we were covering Heart 8. Oh, nice. I didn't remember that. So yeah. that's a good poll. Um, yeah, I, I, I think so. And that was coming up. I mean, that's an iconic scene and probably more so than the opening. And by that point, I was back on board, certainly with the film, and I was enjoying it. But you know that that's coming, and you remember, oh, yeah, this is iconic. And it is. Michael Madsen is so good in this movie and so scary. Like, that character is just a total psychopath. And really, Madsen gets that across. It's a great performance from him. And you really get the sense of, you get the sense of how evil he is, too, because you know, before then they're, they're torturing the cop and they're trying to get information and all the other characters basically are like, we got to find out who betrayed us. And that's why we've got this guy tied up and he knows, and we're going to find out. And Michael Madsen just comes in and says, you know what? I don't care. I just like to torture people and I'm just going to torture you because it's fun and I like it. And that really takes that to another level of how dangerous and scary his character is. And that that is a great scene. And of course, the counterpoint, which is another thing that has become a cliche of this like upbeat poppy song. They're playing stuck in the middle with you as this horrific violence is happening. But even though that's something that has become a cliche, I think it's still really jarring when we see it here. Yeah. And if you know, if you think like, hey, that first scene is overwritten and unnecessary, the writing in this scene shows how Tarantino is able to elevate a character by, you know, giving a different point of view. Um, you mentioned uh, the the music there on K. Billy, which we also heard in the uh, My Best Friend's uh, uh, birthday there. Um, yes. But that was that was it. I like I mean, Dave, you can talk more about it. But, you know, look, we're, we're all fans of like 70s and, you know, kind of I don't want to call this. There was some yacht rock in there, but, you know, just kind of. AM gold, maybe. Right. And um, right, playing right, against yeah. all that violence was was quite effective. And Stephen Wright as the uh, DJ. Right. As the deadpan yeah. DJ uh, speaking in his Stephen Wright voice. But if you watch my best friend's birthday, you get the sense that K. Billy, not exactly a tightly run ship there. <laughs> if you ever want to yeah. see that. Um, yeah, it's all it's all very effective. And the use of music overall in this movie, as Tarantino is becoming had become known for. Uh, is is very effective. What? Well, here's a few things that I I want to point out. Um, you know, one, it's mostly a one location film, and he uses almost every area of that location very effectively. Um, I really like that. Two, one thing that really surprised me was how often he used long shots to just kind of um, you know let the actors just play the whole scene almost, and you know. There are times you're like, oh, I mean, I would expect you to cut to a close here. Or as we've seen over the years, he as he's incredibly stylized and he does it really well. But here it's just like these really long two shots or three shots that like for whatever reason, maybe it's because it's in that single location and it really shows the space. And because the cast is so strong, they're really, really effective. And three, you know, we talked about the cast already, but. That testosterone um, element is is 
fueling this whole thing. And there's always uh, like that kind of sense of uh, uh, hyperactivity and each one of them, you know, could explode at any moment, I feel like. Yeah, there is. I mean, this is obviously, you know, testosterone heavy. There isn't a single female character in this film, almost not even in the background. I don't know if we even fully see the waitress. I guess there's the woman who gets carjacked and shoots Tim Roth. That is the most substantial female character in this film. But I think that's not necessarily a problem because this is a movie about male bonding, is about relationships between men and how all of that macho uh, exterior can backfire or can turn into the tenderness like we see between Harvey Keitel and Tim Roth. So yeah. And, and the single location stuff is great. I, having not seen this in a long time, I didn't remember. And after that opening scene, which is iconic, I thought, oh, does this whole thing just take place in the warehouse after that opening scene? And it doesn't. We have all these flashbacks. And I do think that some of them offer some character development, especially for Tim Roth. But on the other hand, I felt like this movie would have been just as good if you cut out all the flashbacks. And the actors are so good that they really convey everything that's in those flashbacks within the warehouse scenes. I think that's a really interesting idea. And I think that probably would work just as well. Um, and, you know, the idea that Tarantino specifically wrote this to show the before and the after and not the actual heist, like, I think that really could have played into that idea in a very effective way. Um, and, you know, for Tarantino, a man who we know loves like style and in his filmmaking for him to leave out like that heist and that you just hear like, Oh, he started shooting everyone and this and that, like, you know, that was an effective maneuver, but I think you're right. That could have just been all one location. Why not? Yeah. It almost feels like it could be a stage play. And I'm, I'm sure someone has uh, unofficially adapted this into a stage play seems like something that uh, Max Fisher from Rushmore would have done, but I'm sure it exists out yeah. there somewhere. Well, you know, it's when you're reading about Tarantino, we never know what he's going to do next, but he says this is his next movie is going to be his last one. He's going to retire at 10, right? And one idea he had was to remake Reservoir Dogs as his 10th to bookend it, which would have been a cool idea. I think that was a bad idea, and I'm glad that he didn't do it because so much of what makes this movie interesting, I think, comes from limitations that he had whether it was because of budget or the level of experience. And if he went back and made it now, it would just include all that stuff that he smartly left out, I think. Mm. Well, he's not doing it, so let's not worry about right. it. Right. No, that's good. That's good. <laughs> uh, leave it Leave it the way it is. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I felt like those flashbacks, I didn't necessarily dislike them, but they did often feel superfluous to me. And, you know, learning certain things that we don't need to learn or that come out in the dialogue in the warehouse scenes. And every time we got to a flashback, I kind of was thinking like, all right, when are we going to get back to the warehouse? Um, so that that to me was, uh, you know, took me out of it at certain points. But overall, I still, this movie is pretty mesmerizing. You know, the other thing I want to mention, we keep talking about the actors and I know we talked about him on Footloose, but uh, I really like Chris Penn as an actor. I really think he's so effective in this. And this might be the height of what he was doing. And I think he... You know, we know he died young and he had drug addiction problems. I think he would have really done some great things. And especially now when we talk about this content boom and you're looking for good character actors, he could have done so much. And, and he's really, really effective in this film. He is. And he didn't often get a chance to shine quite as much in, in other roles. So here he, he's uh, playing nice guy, Eddie, the son of Joe, the crime boss. And he definitely gets those moments and those those crime movie things where he's the quote nice guy and then he turns and he just like he just shoots the cop who's been tortured for example and you realize yeah he's just as he's just as ruthless he's just as violent as the rest of these guys just because he seems kind of jovial and friendly and he wears a brightly colored tracksuit doesn't mean that he's not as dangerous as everyone else yeah that that one wardrobe maneuver was very unique because it, it made him stand out but also because he's so calm and always joking around when he blows his top, like it's really like, whoa, what was, what's going on here with this guy? You know, um, really, really played it to the hilt. Yes. Yes, indeed. So uh, any other performers that we want to mention that we, I mean, we, we, we pretty much Eddie Bunker didn't get to do much. We've singled out who's great. I mean, but to me, I think you're really getting that kind of backbone piece with Steve Buscemi becoming an indie icon in the nineties here. Yeah, and Buscemi is 
I mean, he's kind of the glue. We talked about Harvey Keitel, and there's the emotional core of this movie is Harvey Keitel and Tim Roth, but Steve Buscemi as the guy who's the the more practical and is always saying like, hey, but what if we did this? Come on, guys, let's do this. Right, right. And he, he does that really, really well. And you can see... You know, obviously, again, he's involved from the beginning and he he really brings his presence to this film. So uh, should we rate this one out of five uh, severed ears, maybe? Uh, you know, we love our uh, dismembered body parts, Josh. I don't think we could pick a better one than that. Let's do five severed ears. I gave it four severed ears. Just um, I really much enjoyed it. Uh, probably the same amount as the first time. Uh, a solid and really, really good debut effort. Yes, it is. It is. I'm going to give it three and a half uh, severed ears so you can sever the severed ear in half there. I definitely did not enjoy it as much as I had in the past. But past that first scene, I still did have a really good time with it. And it is uh, such an amazing debut. And to think of this as his first film, um, it's got a ton of confidence and style and, uh, you know, so much, so much promise. So, Dave, how would you rate this? I hear all your criticisms, guys, but it's a five for me and probably my favorite debut film. Wow. All right. Is it your favorite Tarantino film? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's your favorite debut film ever and your favorite Tarantino movie? Yeah. Wow. You would put this above The Evil Dead? Yeah, because I actually like Evil Dead 2 over Evil Dead. I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I agree with that too. But I think if there's if there's like a list of three things about Dave's personality, one of them is a fan of The Evil Dead. So... Thank you. I appreciate that. And, uh, I, I, take, and I wear that, you know, proudly. What's your second favorite Tarantino movie? That goes back and forth between Pulp Fiction and Inglorious Bastards. Well, yeah. I think maybe we'll talk more about this whole subject uh, in a moment. We'll come back and talk about the legacy of Reservoir Dogs. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1992. We are talking about the debut feature from Quentin Tarantino, Reservoir Dogs. And we were just talking about Tarantino in general and our favorite Tarantino films. Uh, so, Dave, you were saying your second place is Pulp Fiction and what else? And Glorious Bastards. Right. I keep going back and forth on those two. All right. All right. Jason, what's your favorite Tarantino film? It's probably Pulp Fiction. But, like, I mean, I, honestly, like, I want to rewatch the whole catalog because I love both the Kill Bills and Glorious Bastards was great. You know, Django is great. Like, I, I can't really uh, the only wrong answers for me here are Jackie Brown, which I felt felt uh, fell very flat. Ooh. And uh, the Grindhouse movie he made Death, Death Proof was that Death Proof right there. Yeah, those were the two I didn't like in the catalog. I, I think we talked about this in the Pulp Fiction episode. Pulp Fiction is is my favorite Tarantino film and one of my favorite films ever. And weirdly, as much as I love that movie, I feel like most of his other movies, I have a reaction similar to this one where I'm like, yeah, that was good. But they never really stick with me. They're not amongst my favorites. They don't end up on my top 10 list for the year. So I almost would say Pulp Fiction is number one and number two is like, every other Tarantino movie. Or maybe I would put, I remember not particularly caring for The Hateful Eight, which is actually a very similar structure to Reservoir Dogs um, yeah. with the the sort of single location as these people are, are trapped there and the tensions rise. But I remember not being a big fan of that one. But otherwise, I, I haven't seen, other than this in Pulp Fiction, I haven't seen, I don't think, I don't know uh, any of them more than once. I might have, maybe I watched Jackie Brown again before Kill Bill came out. But otherwise, these aren't movies that I really ever have felt compelled to revisit. And I, Tarantino, obviously incredibly talented, incredibly influential. But for some reason, Pulp Fiction just does everything for me and the rest of them, eh, not as much. Can I ask you, Jason, real quick? Have you watched Jackie Brown since it came out? So I will give it a rewatch. I, I do want to agree with Josh. I didn't really dig Hateful Eight either. Uh, the thing is, I had read the Jackie Brown script before it came out, and I was surprised because mm-hmm. I was like, man, this didn't grab me at all. And I was a big Tarantino fan. And then I saw the movie, and it kind of felt like I was watching the script, which is often mm-hmm. the case in movies. You <laughs> film what's on the script. I just didn't think it connected, sure. but I will rewatch it. I mean, I, I like to rewatch the whole catalog, but it just that one, you know, there's a few misses in there for me, but it's interesting because this connect rate, it's never, I disagree with Josh. Like when he connects, I'm never like, ah, that's a single or a double. It's usually a home run for him. Mm. 
Yeah. And I, I think, Jason, that most people or, you know, most fans of his or film fans uh, would agree with you that other than people who just don't like Tarantino, that all of those other movies get high, high praise as well and, and tend to be, you know, on a lot of end of year lists and nominated for awards and all that stuff. But I don't know. I mean, I think also he's not he's not prolific, like deliberately, like you said, he wants to make 10 films and then end. And so every one of his films has this feeling like it's an event. And I never just it just never quite gets to that level for me. So he's got two screenplay Oscars for writing for Pulp Fiction and Django. Uh, we are getting now he's a uh, an author as as not just of screenplays, but of books, as we know from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And He's about to start his podcast, Cinema Speculation, with Roger Avery, where they go through the archives of uh, of the video archives and they talk about the movies that Tarantino bought that entire catalog on VHS and, and uh, has it for them to watch. Yeah. So Tarantino influenced by awesome movie year. You know, <laughs> clearly. As, <so. laughs> as a guy who always pays homage to his influences, clearly that's where we are with the podcast now. Yeah. Roger Avery. <laughs> hey, man. Rules of Attraction. That was a good movie. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, maybe uh, maybe given my love for Pulp Fiction and my uh, semi-indifference to the rest of Tarantino's work, maybe it's really Roger Avery. Who I yeah. Perhaps you need a Killing Zoe rewatch to really yeah. figure that out. <laughs> no, I don't think so. And obviously Tarantino uh, is is a, a key element of why Pulp Fiction is good. Um, th- this was also sort of the, the, the brief launch of Tarantino as an actor, appearing not only in like kind of small roles in his own films, but even in films by other directors. I'm sure we all remember Destiny Turns on the Radio. The, the movie where Tarantino was like the star of it for some reason. Um, yeah, I didn't and, know uh, and oh, also had a major role dawn. from, yeah, from Dust Till Dawn, sure. which he did write, but didn't direct. Um, he's kind of fallen away from doing that. Uh, I looked like the last real actual role in a movie he had that wasn't just a, a cameo or an appearance as himself was in 2007 in the Takashi Miike Western uh, Sukiyaki Western Django, which I haven't seen, but obviously it has the word Django in the title. So it's not surprising that Tarantino wanted to appear. In well, it. you know, the spaghetti Western Django from 66 has uh, is very influential in the ear cutting scene in this one, too. Um, was Tarantino, did he act in four rooms? I know he directed that one segment, but did he also act in that one? He might have. I didn't note down every. I mean, a lot of those roles are, again, they're just kind of small roles in his own film. So it's quite possible that he did. And he still does do cameos and things like that. But I think he's fallen away from the idea that he should have a substantial role, and which is good because he's not a good actor. And it's a test. He should be in a movie with the guy from American Movie. And that should just be a buddy <laughs> comedy to me because they, with they literally talk at. Well, yeah, Mark Borchard. They talk at literal opposite speeds. Tarantino's like the fastest talker I can think of. And Mark Borchard and Mike are like the two slowest talkers, like as deliberate pace. Like, well, that would be amazing to me. Yeah, I, I don't know. I would see that, but I would be concerned about that. Which one of them would, which one of them would direct it? Well, Mark Borchard, of course. <laughs> yeah, that, of yeah, course. that would be, that would be something. Um. Tarantino has all these unrealized projects. I think that's that's one of the also the sort of well-known things about him because he's so deliberate that he develops all of these things that he doesn't end up doing. Uh, but one of those was a potential movie for the Vega brothers, Michael Madsen's character in this film and John Travolta's character in Pulp Fiction, supposedly are brothers. And he was going to make a prequel because, of course, they both die in their respective films, but a prequel about them together in Amsterdam and you know they got too old to do that that's not going to happen anymore it sounds like so but that would have been a, a follow up in in some ways to reservoir dogs yes another interesting thing about reservoir dogs uh and i'm going to read this i copied this uh from wikipedia but i thought it was interesting in february of 2012 as part of an ongoing series of live dramatic readings of film scripts being staged with the los angeles county Museum of Art, LACMA, director Jason Reitman cast black actors in the originally white cast. So Lawrence Fishburne played Mr. White, Terrence Howard as Mr. Blonde, Anthony Mackie as Mr. Pink, Cuba Gooding Jr. as Mr. Orange, and Chai McBride as Joe Cabot, with Anthony Anderson as uh, Nice Guy Eddie. Uh, Common played both Mr. Brown and Officer Nash. 
Patton Oswald played the uh, Holdaway character, the the mentor cop. So I think if you were going to remake this movie, that would be a really interesting way to do it. It would be, and and Tarantino would probably not be the person to direct it. Also, not the person to direct it would be Jason Reitman. But um, <laughs> I, that is an interesting idea. And, and you know, one thing that we didn't talk about that I know we talked about a bit when we did a Pulp Fiction episode is the use of racist language and the n-word and that kind of stuff in this film which is something that tarantino has been criticized for a lot and you know on the one hand you could argue that these guys are low lifes and they would talk like that and they would be racist but on the other hand it definitely feels of a piece with the kind of show-offy dialogue and tarantino often kind of throwing it in like look what i can say or look what i can have characters say and and i think it, it is a little it makes you feel a little hinky when you watch it or at least it does to me yeah, it's jarring. Um, I do think you could argue that it actually fits dialogue-wise here with these characters more than it did in Pulp Fiction, but it is still very jarring and um, and and not necessary in the long run. Right. You know. Right. And I think that's the ultimate thing is that you could take it out. It's not adding anything to the characters. Hey, Josh. Another interesting thing was, and this is uh, we got to get Dave's opinion on this. They made a video game out of this movie. Dave, did you ever play this video game? A notoriously bad video game, I think. Right, right. That's what I think I remember hearing. I never played it. No, it was from like the era of games where I just was just kind of like checked out. But uh, I, I don't know. I love the idea that there's a video game of a Quentin Tarantino movie. That's kind of weird. I wonder, I think, you know, why, part of why it was bad was that it didn't, I don't think Tarantino had any involvement, but it would be interesting to see Tarantino himself like develop a video game. Yeah, well, it's funny because all the dialogue and, you know, performances, that's what you associate with him. And it's like, you don't get that out of video game characters, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely not. Um, so, Jason, I mean, we talked about the amazing cast here, you know, all of these people. What I was struck by is that almost all of these people, whether uh, they had worked with Tarantino, like Steve Buscemi, you know, helping him develop it at Sundance or not, they all go on to work with Tarantino in various capacities in later films. You know, Harvey Keitel was in Pulp Fiction and From Dust Till Dawn and Inglorious Bastards. Tim Roth was in Pulp Fiction. He was in Four Rooms. He was in The Hateful Eight. Michael Madsen in Kill Bill and The Hateful Eight and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Steve Buscemi as the waiter in Pulp Fiction. And even Chris Penn was in True Romance, which which Tarantino wrote and Tony Scott directed. So clearly some some real artistic kinship for all of these actors with Tarantino. And and we know that's, you know, he's one of those directors that likes to develop like his own repertory unit there. The only one you didn't mention was Lawrence Tierney, who... If you read about him, man, that's a that's a crazy uh, life that guy led. Um, you know, there's there's questions if he was a real gangster, if he had murdered a woman in a way that was uh, kind of like mirroring a scene from one of his movies at one point in time. Just all types of crazy. I even saw a quote from one of the Simpsons producers that said he was the craziest guest star they ever had on it. So um, <laughs> just uh, just a wild life that guy led. Yeah. And you get that. I mean, obviously, you know, there's plenty of people who play gangsters who don't have that. But uh, you you definitely look at Lawrence Tierney in this movie and you think yeah, he could have walked on on the set from, you know, having just committed an actual heist himself or something like that. <laughs> he has that grizzled. And at one point, you know, Tim Roth's character compares him to the thing from the Fantastic Four, which is a guy who's covered in literal rocks. And I think yeah. he just he imbues that so well. Right, right. So, Josh, out of the People you've mentioned, uh, I'm excited. Harvey Keitel is playing Customato, who was like the orchestrator of Mike Tyson's career. I think that's going to be a miniseries. We know Tim Roth is going to have a huge summer as Abomination in She-Hulk on uh, Disney+. Plus. Steve Buscemi, I think, has a new movie coming out called The Helpline that he directed. And uh, Josh, I know you love his work in The Boss Baby. And uh, Michael Madsen. Uh, there's a documentary about him called American Badass, uh, and he's also, I looked at his IMDb, he has 17 new projects in the works. Yeah, Michael Madsen, I mean, that's that, it's a little sad that he has that many projects because he's so good in this movie, and you think, wow, this is, and it was a breakout role for him, but he's one of these actors who, like like Eric Roberts or uh, Michael Perret, who we talked about when we talked about Streets of Fire or Tom Sizemore, 
where for whatever reason, he just is stuck in this world of these straight to video B movies. He clearly will take any job that's offered to him. And it ends up devaluing him as an actor if he ever has a chance for a bigger uh, role. And, you know, I write about, I review a lot of these straight to VOD movies in a, in a biweekly column that I do. And so I've seen him in a lot of these films and it's always just kind of sad to watch him in these B movies where, you know, he's, he's still got a presence, but he's certainly not giving it his all. And it's, uh, it's a shame that his career went in that direction. Not like the free Willie days, huh? Well, I'm sure he was getting paid more in those days, at least. Dave, did you ever score a movie with Michael Madsen in it? Uh, no, he, he's worked with some people that I've worked with, but I haven't scored one of his. Wow, Dave, you know, some people who know him great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, yeah. uh, the Mahal brothers who are local Vegas based, yeah. uh, film. Oh my producers, God. Are you going to mention them Michael on Madsen. every, on, do, are relevant. they your sponsors, Josh? This is a Vegas based podcast. <laughs> yeah. Oh. It's, 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 it's relevant here, I think. But, uh, yeah, Lawrence Tierney, he did have a brief kind of resurgence after this film, but as you said, he was, uh, tough to work with. So didn't maybe get that all the work that he could have potentially gotten that he died in, in 2002. I, I don't know anybody, uh, any other actors or, or roles that we want to mention. I mean, Buscemi, like you were saying, with his support for indie films, he's worked a ton with the Coen brothers. Um, we'll be talking he, more about him this, uh, this season, Josh. Yes. Uh, I, I can't believe you neglected to mention your favorite movie, Trees Lounge, that uh, Steve Buscemi directed and starred in. I love that movie, and I'm excited that he's directing again. Josh, have you ever seen uh, City on Fire, the Ringo Lamb movie from 1987? I have not. Is that another influence here? Yeah, I just wanted to bring that up. But I think, you know, the only other person that Dave had mentioned earlier was Stephen Wright, who's a great comedian and um, an Oscar winner for a short film. Yeah, Stephen Wright. And, and, and perfectly sort of placed in this movie to deliver that deadpan as the as the 70s uh sounds of the 70s dj because it's the opposite of what you would expect from a radio dj and from a, a sort of 70s classic hits radio station so uh yeah is there anything else on the legacy of this film that we want to talk about no, i think i think we covered it it'll be exciting you know you had mentioned some of those projects like uh the star trek movie that tarantino was gonna do and everything else. It'll be exciting to see what he does as his 10th film and if that will really be it for him. But he does seem to be moving into uh, other aspects of the world as a creator. Yeah, I think no one really believes him that he'll make that 10th film his last film. But, uh, you know, maybe he's been talking about it for so long that I feel like if he goes back on it, he's just going to get so much crap from people that he's like boxed himself into a corner and he's going to have to do it. That I, I don't think it, I don't think it'll matter. You know, five yeah. years go by. I've got a quick question for you guys before we wrap it up. What's a third Tarantino movie? Not that's like your favorite or something, but that you think would be interesting to talk about? as an episode. I mean, I think they're all interesting because he's always playing with so many influences and so many different themes and aspects of alternate history and things like that. So, I mean, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has so many avenues to explore. That that might be my pick. Mine would probably be Inglorious Bastards just because mm-hmm. I think that was the, of all the alternate histories, that's the one that kind of set that whole thing in motion and he did it in such an effective way. And um, that was his first collaboration with uh, Christoph Waltz, which was so, um, you know, really fruitful and Brad Pitt. I just think that's probably the one for me. Yeah, that's a great answer. Yeah, I mean, but again, I think any of them, there's no way that you would have a Tarantino movie and there wouldn't be something to talk about with it. It's always fascinating. to talk. I think about. it's Destiny mm-hmm. Turns on the Radio. I look forward to our episode on Destiny Turns on the Radio. <laughs> so that is Reservoir Dogs, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can check us out on social media. We are on social media, awesomemovieyear.com, Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram, Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. I'm Jason Harris Comedy or J Harris Comedy on all the socials. My website, Go for Jason, is stuck in a warehouse in 1992. But I am at Go for Jason on Letterboxd, so you should listen to that. And also, Check out Josh's new podcast, Who's Gay in This Movie and Why? That, I guarantee you, is a real podcast, by the way. You can find me at joshbellhateseverything.com, at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook, and at Signal Bleed on Twitter, and at Signal Bleed on Letterboxd, if you want to check out uh, my stuff there as well. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. 
Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. And by the way, we did do an entire Tarantino ranking episode right before Once Upon a Time in Hollywood came out. So check that one out and uh, follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And check out the Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces group where you can argue about what your favorite Tarantino movie is. Yes. So Jason, what do we have in our next episode? Josh, we're going to a notorious flop from 1992. Major director, major star. It is Toys, directed by Barry Levinson and starring Robin Williams. And uh, I'm interested because I saw that in the theater, but haven't seen it since. So I want to know just all the things that went wrong with it, Josh. Yeah, notorious is uh, is right the right word for that. And I've never seen it. So it'll be interesting to check that out. Tune in next time for Toys. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.